Well, good morning, everyone. How many of you, this is the first morning you have attended the School of the Word since COVID? Wonderful. So good to see all of you. What we're doing, for those of you who are here for the first time since, I think it was March, was, is that the last time we were here in March? It feels like 100 years ago. And looking at some of us, it looks like 100 years ago. No, no, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I was actually, that wasn't an insult. For some of us, that was actually a better, oh, well, whatever. Let's not go that way. <laughs> it's interesting that Miss Anna is the only one that responded that way. <laughs> whatever. Um, what we're doing, we're reviewing the I think it was about 13 or 14 weeks that we had before COVID. And so obviously we have to review for a couple of reasons. First, some of you were not part of that whole presentation. And if you feel what we're going through is just not clear enough and then not enough detail, you can go back and get the presentations online of those lessons that we had been doing for 13 weeks. And then secondly, I was an English teacher in high school. And I know that when we taught one particular class, the next day, we kind of had to review what was in that class to bring it up to this class and to move forward. And so we just have to do that to refresh our thoughts. And remember, the presentation is about... <clears throat> I don't ever like to say this is the most important thing we'll ever study because I think it categorizes aspects of the scripture and aspects of God himself in a way that I don't want to do. But I will say this, <clears throat> knowing, understanding, experiencing, and walking in God's love is God's goal for us as his image bearers because his glory, the glory of who he is in himself is mostly manifested, at least as I understand the scriptures, mostly manifested, I didn't say only, mostly manifested in the reality and in the power, in the ministry of his love in us, among us, and through us. I believe that touches the glory of God in a way that no other activity touches the glory of God. And as we'll see, as we move forward, we will better understand why does he say that? And my temptation this morning is to go and, and start doing a little bit of that, but I'm going to stop. So you're just going to have to hold on until we move along in this. So at this point, we have been studying, reviewing rather, the aseity of God, the aseity. Some of you may remember that word. 
A-S-E-I-T-Y, A-S-E-I-T-Y. It is a Latin term which means a say of self. It has to do with God's self-existence. He always has been. In fact, we say he is. In fact, he says to Moses when Moses says, asks, what name shall I tell these people? What's the name of this God who is going to deliver us? And remember in Exodus, what, 3, 14, you're right. He says, tell them that I am has sent you. I am the ever-present one who has no beginning, no ending. And so everything that is has come into being through this one who is himself self-existence, self-existent. He has not brought himself into existence. He just is. So we went through all of that. And again, a couple of weeks ago in a more detail in the first three weeks of our presentation. And so last week we talked about let me make sure I'm on the right page. Yeah, last week we talked about God's omniscience. What does that mean? Remember omniscience? What does omniscience mean? Somebody tell me something. He knows everything comprehensively immediately. No, nothing, no one is outside of his personal immediate knowledge. And so because he is omniscient, what does that mean about his love? His love is also what? Omniscient. There's nothing about your life that he doesn't know. And there's nothing about your life that he doesn't love. He's not only omniscient, he's also what? Omnipresent. What does that mean? He's everywhere present immediately and comprehensively. So nothing is hidden from him. He's present. And so because he is omnipresent, what about his love? It's omnipresent. So is God's love in you and for you even when you are doing something very wrong? Yes or no? Yes, because since God is omnipresent, it is impossible for him not to be everywhere immediately and comprehensively. There is not a place where God is not all the time. And because he is always there all the time, his love is always there. How often? All the time. And so you could begin to think of yourself and you begin to think of those times when you did something and your thought was, does God still love me? Is his love still there? Is it or not? How do we know yes? Because God is omnipresent. And he's also omnipotent. Which means what? All powerful. Which means this. That those whom God loves will be loved. Because God's power will see to it. That those whom he loves will be loved forever. And so is there any way. Anything at all about us or in us that can prevent God from loving those of us whom he has called into his kingdom. Annie, is there anything more powerful than God? 
No. So is there anything that can prevent God's love from coming to us and being given to us and residing in us and working in us if we are those people whom he has called into his love before the foundation of the world? Remember in Ephesians 1, 4, before the foundation of the world. Is there anything, Floyd, that can stop that? No. Is there anything that can stop the gospel from going to God's people wherever and whoever they are and in whatever circumstance? Is there any, anything at all that can prevent that? No. Why? Because God is omnipotent. And you see, once we begin to understand God's love within the context of his other attributes, it begins to really enlarge our understanding of that love, and it begins to give us the real meaning and the real function of that love. And so that's why I feel the Holy Spirit is leading us to do this. Today we're going to talk about two more attributes, although I may say in my notes three, I lied because the Holy Spirit simply would not let me go into the third one. I talked to David about that yesterday or whenever it was. I said I tried three different times and each time, no, no, no. Okay, fine. Today we'll talk about God, God's immutability and God's sovereignty. Uh, we're going to have to extend the time on these. They're going to have to start service later, right? So let's, let's, uh, immutable. What is one thing we know about this world? Everything changes constantly. Is there anything about this world or your life or my life or anything in finances, in families, in politics? Is there anything that never changes? Wake up today. And it's going to be different than yesterday. We are guaranteed that tomorrow will be different than today. Everything is in flux. But God himself is immutable. Why? Because of his aseity. Because he is self-existent, complete in himself. He is immutable. He is without any change whatsoever in his nature and in his character. He is absolutely immutable, unchangeable in what he wants to do, what his plans are, what his promises are, what his purpose is. This is immutable. Why? Because his plans, his will, and his purposes are the outflow or the outworking or the manifestation of who he is in himself. And so obviously the purpose of God and the plan of God for us, for the world, for this creation, is a manifestation of himself. And because he himself is immutable, without change, changeless, therefore his will, ultimate will, his ultimate purpose, his ultimate promises for us, for this world, for the creation, are they changeable? Yes or no? No, they're not. Why? Because God is immutable. Why is God immutable? Because of who he is, because of his aseity. As he is yesterday, he will be tomorrow. And so it is impossible. May I repeat that? It is impossible 
for God to experience any change in himself. Now, listen to the way it is said. I did not say God does not change his mind because he often changes his methods in a time frame among a changeable people to make sure that his immutable purpose is carried out. Did you, do you understand what I just said? How many of you are parents in here or grandparents? How many of you have determined unequivocally, my child, my grandchild is going to go to school? Okay? Now, using that as an immutable purpose, let's say that's unchangeable. Okay, rooster, your child is going to go to school. There's nothing that's going to prevent that, right? You've made a determination. However, do, does the way you administer your immutable purpose change in relation to the way you walk and relate to your child through the seasons of his life? Yes or no? Yes. When he's six years old, you use these methods to ensure your purpose. When he's 10 years old, you use these methods. When he's 15 years old, you use the methods that you did when he was six. You say, you thought I was going to say something different, didn't you? Warren says, that's what happened to me, you know? And so that's what we do. But so our methods change. But Anton, does that mean I change as to my purpose? No. And so the Bible will say, and we don't want to go into details, God changes my mind. Oh, oh, God changes. Well, yes, Mark, he what? Changed his, at this season, this is the way I'm going to deal with my child. A hundred years later, in this season, I'm going to deal with my child this way. But you can depend on one thing, Mike. What I want, my child, want for my child is as unchangeable as I am. And it will be done. Why? Because Rosa, what? I'm unchangeable. Do we see that? Immutability. And so, Micah 3, 6, we've heard this. I, Yahweh, the Lord. Remember, in the Old Testament, 6,800 times the Lord, that word L-O-R-D in all caps, is the word for Yahweh. I, Yahweh, I what? I do not change. James 1.17, <clears throat> the father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadows. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and for how long? Forever. Why? Because God is immutable. There's no change in him. In fact, if there is a scintilla, Judy, how big is a scintilla? Not even that big. If there is a scintilla of change in God himself, listen to the way I am saying this. You know, I'm an English teacher. I try to use the language and prepositions correctly and accurately. If there is a scintilla of change within God, as to his essence, 
as to his nature and character, then God cannot remain God. It is impossible for God to experience in himself any change. And the reason I say in himself, because I see that there are changes in the way he deals with his children. We've talked about that. So I want to make clear a distinction among us. So when you hear someone begin to preach, well, God didn't know where Adam and Eve were. Where are you, Adam? Where are you? He didn't know what Abraham would do in chapter 22. Oh, you're going to sacrifice your son or not? I, I don't know. God is dealing with his people in a way that they can understand him better. And so he talks to them and he relates to them and he leads them. Anthropomorphically. How do you say that, David? Anthropomorphically. As if he were a human with them. But he himself and his purpose never change. So we're going to school today and we're going to go down this street. And when we're going down this street, we turn and go down another. Well, daddy, you said you were going. No, I said we're going to school. And I just said we're going down this street. I did not guarantee that this street is the street absolutely will go down, did I? I just said what? We're going to school this morning. And so let's go down this street. And then all of a sudden, there's construction. We turn around, we do another way or whatever. But we finally get what? To school. See, daddy's purpose does not change. Although I can change directions and methods. I can express sorrow about things. I, I, I don't know if you've ever done this. If you have, don't raise your hand. Seriously. But have you ever either said or felt to say, you know, I'm sorry you were ever born. Some parents do that. That's an expression of a very deep dissatisfaction or something is wrong rather than probably a heartfelt true feeling. It's just way sometimes we express ourselves. God is immutable. So what does this mean about his love? Why does Jeremiah 31 3, what does it say? I've already quoted this before. I have loved you. Now, by the way, whom is he speaking to? To whom is he speaking? Who is the object of the verb love? I have loved you. Who is the you? Who? His people. His people. His people are the people of his love. I've loved you what? Since you were born again. I mean, Gwen, is that what it says? I've loved you. I mean, Carolyn, is that what it says? I've loved you since you were born again. No, Isaac, is that what it says? Miguel? Is that what it says? Debbie, is that what it says? How many of us think God's loved us since we were born again? Sometimes we hear that kind of preaching. It's wrong preaching. Well, I've loved you because you were born again. 
Ah, do you see the implication? We first seek God and we first seek him to love us so that when we ask Jesus to love us and when we ask Jesus to save us, then we become God's beloved children. Right, Gwen? But that's what they say often. If you listen to them very carefully, how to receive, I'm sorry, how to be loved by God. Beth, when did God start loving you? It never did begin before the foundation of the world. Why does God love us? <clears throat> Listen, here's the answer. Why does God love us? Because he is. Because he is. And so if there is any reason whatsoever, even a scintilla of a reason in me and about me that has caused God to love me, that means that I am in great danger of doing something that will cause him to what? Withdraw his love from me. And I can't grow in fellowship and relationship with this God if I'm not sturdy and secure in this love. Is God's love fickled? Is our love fickled? Well, so now, how many of you have experienced this? And if you want to, you can raise your hands. It doesn't matter. How many of us have felt, F-E-L-T, felt, 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 felt. Remember what I'm saying, felt. How many of us have felt that God either doesn't love us or his love for me has diminished for some reason? How many of us have ever felt this? How many of us have done something and have feared that God's love would be diminished? I think we all do that, or at least we all have done it. Why can we be so secure? Because this God who is himself, in himself, immutable, therefore his love for us is also as what? Immutable as he is immutable. Can you say amen? That should be rejoicing, rejoicing and dancing in the street. Because his love is not set upon me for anything in or about me. And his love will not be withdrawn from me. And you say, oh, oh, would that mean I can do anything you want? You go ahead and do that and see if this great father won't deal with you. Because those whom he loves, he disciplines. Somebody said that somewhere. So this is why Matthew 28, 20. Remember what Matthew 28, 20 says? Jesus is ascending and he says, what? What does Matthew 28, 20 say? And lo, or behold, I am with you forever to the end of the age. Why can we trust that? Because his love is immutable. His love is immutable. Let's talk for a moment about sovereignty. I really don't like going through these again quickly. You may have to forgive me if I go next week in the sovereignty. But it's, let me tell you, it is so crucial that we allow the Holy Spirit to take the truth of who God is in himself. The most important study is who God is in himself.
it is so crucial for us to allow the Holy Spirit to take the revelation of this God and to apply the truth of this God against our understandings and our experiences of who we are and how we are and begin to take the sledgehammer of his word and begin to come against and smash into the false walls of our understanding of God and especially of his love. And so the sledgehammer of God's word, when we say his love is immutable, the sledgehammer comes against bam, our understanding and experience of what we think is God's love. And another portion of the wall falls. And we say God is omniscient. Boom! Into the wall of our misunderstanding and misexperience and miswalking in the love of God. And as we take each one of these attributes and so many more we're not even going to deal with. This is a sledgehammer of the Holy Spirit smashing into our misconceptions. Because all we know of love is our own love. And this is an alien love which we begin to experience once he brings us into his kingdom. Amen? And we must allow the Holy Spirit to crush and destroy this idolatry of my own love. And begin to... Build up the truth and the beauty and the freedom and the joy and the peace of the love of God in me. And that's what's happening. How many of you, and this isn't good old Peter Davidson because he's such a teacher, has nothing to do with me. I don't like that. Don't do that to me. It has everything to do with the glory of the Holy Spirit. This is the glory of the Holy Spirit. How many of us, by the glory of the Holy Spirit, have been ministered to through some of these messages? Yes, I have been. I have been. How many of us have experienced greater freedom and joy? So when we see God's love or we sing about the love of God, we say, yes, more than we did the other day, right? Yes. How many of us, when we hear about the love of God, when we read about the love of God, when we hear about the love of God, begin to remember the attributes that God's love is? Yes, yes, yes. And this isn't because of me. This is because the great teacher in this class is whom? Is who, who, who? The Holy Spirit. We have a few more minutes. God's sovereignty. <clears throat> if we were in England, you would hear a common phrase. And that phrase would be the sovereign. The sovereign. Who's the sovereign in England? Who? Elizabeth II. What does it mean, the sovereign? The queen. Now, somewhat misplaced today because she is, does not rule sovereignly. But the sovereign means, or the sovereignty means what? Having absolute, complete, autonomous, self-sufficient, intrinsic 
authority to rule over whatever the domain is. Correct? It's intrinsic in God. What does that mean, intrinsic? It's his because of who he is. It's not given to him. He didn't earn it. It's absolute in him. He's the sovereign. He has absolute authority to rule over every aspect of his creation. <clears throat> and no one, nowhere, for no reason, has any right to question God's decisions, which are the result or the expression of his sovereignty. I didn't say no one does question. I say no one has what? The right to do it. See, you have to listen to words because you want to say, well, Peter said no one can question. I question. No, I said no one has the right to question. This means that God is in complete, comprehensive, continual, absolute control of absolutely every aspect of his creation whatsoever and forever. Now, I may have left out something in that comment. If I did, let me know and we'll add it to it. Now, when I say that, now, come on, let's be truthful. How many of our minds begin to say, well, what about? Anybody think that way? Well, what about this or that? Anybody? Well, you should. When I say that comment, I'm sorry, when I said what I just said, my mind at the same time, Lisa, at the same time I'm saying it, I'm saying to myself, well, what about? Because here are the two grand mysteries, and I can't help you on this. And actually, not even Evan May can help you. Now, David, I didn't mention you, so maybe there's... Everybody know... Wave, wave to us, David. That's David Batten, everybody. He did a wonderful job teaching school of the word during the summer. Thank you so much, brother. Lovely man. Really, a lovely man. I'm not talking about physically either. Now, what was I just saying a minute ago? I'm sorry. I'm not going to get through sovereignty today, so just sit tight. What did I just... What was I just talking about? What? Oh, two grand mysteries. And here's where we go off the rail. We want to know and understand anything and everything. We demand explanations that satisfy our finite, minuscule, intellectual ability. And we're looking at the eternal, the transcendent, the divine, and trying to bring this eternal, I say God, I say it, I say God, into a comprehensive understanding within the finiteness and the minusculeity and the fallenness and the corruption of our own minds. And when we can't do it, we get upset and we begin to write theology books and we begin to make statements that God can't and he wouldn't and he shouldn't. What an idolatry. And if believers, we find ourselves doing this, repent of that. So Deuteronomy 29, 29 is important. Isaiah 55, what is it? Verses 
7 and 8, so, well, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways. Remember, as high as the heavens are my ways higher. We should never do that. We should ask, I need help and I would like to understand better, but we should never get upset because there's mystery. So here's the mystery. <clears throat> How can and where do the twin truths of God's absolute complete sovereignty and our personal responsibility, how do they intersect? How do they run together, making two tracks, you know, so the train can go down them? How do they do that? If God is absolutely sovereign, that means that I have no responsibility, that what I did was determined by him, and therefore I am not to be blamed. Right? Does, isn't that logical? Yes. But it's not the truth. Because man's logic is not God's truth. Come on, church. Come on. Think about it. So I don't know how these two go together. But what I do know is that they do go together in the divine mystery. And we're just going to have to forget not understanding it and know this. My God is sovereign. But my God also requires me to make godly decisions. And you can hear yourself thinking about it, right? Well, what if it did? Go somewhere else. I don't know. And I can tell you one thing. God is not going to tell you the answer. You can forget about asking. He may give you a little illumination, but not deep illumination. <clears throat> so God is sovereign. In Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and all his sovereignty rules over it. And because God is sovereign, we read these words in the Revelation 19, 16. He is what? King of kings and Lord of lords. In other words, whatever in an earthly creative sense we understand as a ruler or rule, God is what? Overruling it overruling it because God is sovereign well listen to this in Isaiah 46 9 through 10 <clears throat> because he's sovereign can he accomplish his will yes or no can man's will ever withstand and overcome and thwart means bring to nothing right God's will can his will no Will God violate man's will? We hear people say, God will never violate your will. Well, you're just going to go ahead and read Genesis chapter 14, where the angel of the Lord dragged Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah when Lot didn't. Well, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. You come and boom. And Lot went. Guess what? He and his whole family went. Remember Jonah? Do you remember Jonah? I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm taking a boat somewhere else. You can't make me go to Nineveh. That's not my will. God can't make you do. Guess what he did? He went to Nineveh. I mean, he went there. <laughs> so let's be careful what we think. But then there is man's responsibility. How does it work, church? Gail, do you understand how it works? I mean, Phyllis, can you illumine us? No. Gene can illumine us, right? Oh, not even Gene can illumine us. I forgot what I was saying again. What's wrong with my mind? Say it, help me. 
No, you can't thwart it. So listen to what Isaiah says. Listen, I, I'm going to say it this way. And look, it's not incorrect to say this is what Isaiah said. But here's a more accurate statement. Hear what the Holy Spirit says through Isaiah. When we say the Apostle Paul said something, that's not inaccurate. But a better way of saying it is hear what the Holy Spirit says through Paul. Always remember, behind all of these men is a Holy Spirit who is the real author. So here it is. I am God. There's a statement of his aseity. I'm self-existent. I am God. <clears throat> Isn't it interesting? He begins by saying what? I am the only eternal self-existent being. Therefore, I have a right to talk to you like this. <laughs> and there is no other God declaring the end from the beginning, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish what? Most of my purpose if you cooperate with my church. No, he didn't say that. Because God is sovereign, I can depend upon what Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, under the leading inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What does Paul say in Philippians 1, 6? For I am confident of this very th one thing. What? That he, who, he, who? God himself. Who has what? Begun a good work. What is that good work? Our salvation unto his purpose to be finalized in heaven. He who has begun a good work shall what? Shall what? Bring it to what? Completion, fruition. When? On the day of Jesus Christ at the perusa. The perusa is a word which has to do with the return of Jesus visibly. Those of us who are saved, we are saved sovereignly, omnipotently, omnisciently, <laughs> immutably. Do you see it? And sovereignly, he has decreed this. We are here today, not because we decided something or we called upon someone. We decided or received and called upon him because God sovereignly declared that we would when he sent the Holy Spirit to change our hardened hearts to soft hearts. Remember Ezekiel 36, 26, 7, and 8. 26 and 7, whatever. Do you understand that? Yes, we have to call upon the Lord. What does that mean? We have to receive Christ. We have to embrace the gift. But we were not given that gift because we asked for it. You see, God does not give up a little of his sovereignty and give it to us and put the decision of our salvation in our lap. God does not say, let me cut a little piece of my arm off and give it to my people. God cannot change who he is. He can't do it. He doesn't give a part of his sovereignty to anyone so they can sovereignly call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And so when they call upon the name of the Lord, then Jesus can come on running in and say, here I am. Here I am. It's God who calls from when? From eternity before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4. And that call comes to my heart and to your heart at the moment the Holy Spirit comes into me and begins to change me on the inside and gives me revelation and gives me deep desire unto salvation 
to which I respond because my heart has been unlocked and unchained. So I respond, yes, to as many as what? Received him. To them, he gave the authority, exousia, the authority to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. I just quoted someone somewhere. So I wanted to finish today. We'll just go back a little bit into sovereignty next time. But keep your notes. Look at them. We're here today. You are not here today, rather, because you called upon the name of the Lord. Because if you called upon the name of the Lord, you may uncall upon him. And when he called upon you, think about this. When he called upon you, he is omniscient. What does omniscient know? What mean? Knows everything. When he called upon you, when he sovereignly declared you are my child in a time frame, making good in a time frame that which has always been his purpose for us. When he did that. How much of your sin did he know about? How much of that sin was placed onto the shoulders of Jesus at the cross? All of it. And therefore, how much was forgiven? <clears throat> All of it. So he knew how many doubts you would have, how much dirt you would spill, even as a child of God. How much faith difficulty you would have. But he knew it and he brought you in, having forgiven it, to sustain you to the very end. There's nothing that we can do that can escape God. He knows it all. And he doesn't save someone today knowing that they're going to come out tomorrow, but I'll do it anyway. He doesn't do that because then his will is changed for me. See you next time.